You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So last week, we began with a word association. Your word last week that I wanted you to think about was change. We're going to do that again. Here's your word for this morning. Temptation. What comes to mind? Some of us are thinking about our own temptations. I would guess that some of us are thinking about other people's temptations. I would think that some of us are thinking about it in terms of sexuality. I think some of us may be thinking of it in other terms. Because what we know is this, is temptation is there for all of us, and it runs the gamut. It doesn't just uh, locate in one area. I think uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you're familiar with that name, writes about this and explains this. And I think it captures most of us here, where he says, in our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh all at once. A secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in its flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or, power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world of nature. In that moment, joy is and God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not fill us with the hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Now, he captures us in that, I think. Satan does not fill us with the hatred of God. He doesn't need to fill us with the hatred of God. If he can just fill us with a forgetfulness of God, then he's won quite the battle, hasn't he? The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. See, when we talk about temptation... If you know the story of David, you knew that we had to get to this passage. You knew we had to come to this moment where we're going to be this morning. Because it swallowed David whole. My guess is we've all been there at some point. We've all had that moment when we have felt this. Now as we talk about it, if you were here last week, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the Davidic covenant. We talked about what God had promised to David. And so it bears mentioning that the events of 2 Samuel are not chronological for us. We begin talking about David's successes, some accomplishments, some significant events in his life, and then we move into this section of his warring and some of his sins that he battles with. And so when we come to this passage, the one we looked at last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the covenant is made that God makes with David, happens when David's about 68 years old. Here we are four chapters later in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're about 19 years earlier. 
So yes, the Davidic covenant, although we've already looked at it in, the co- in our copy of Scripture, hasn't actually happened when this story happens. David's about 49 years old when this happens. And so if you've ever wondered, how does somebody uh, in David's stature end up in this? Well, he was a younger man, and I'm making no excuses for David. We're going to talk through this passage today, and we're going to be real, and we're going to own some of our stuff that we have to talk through in this. I think Tom Constable says this when he says, perhaps this is the second most notorious sin in the Bible after the fall. Most of you, if you're familiar with Scripture, know this story. It has received much attention from unbelievers in movies and other forms of un, uh, excuse me, entertainment. Unbelievers love to gloat over the sins of godly people. Does that catch anybody off guard? One is that this world celebrates when somebody falls. And isn't it just like our culture that we would take a fall of somebody and turn it into a story for entertainment? We would turn it into an opportunity to create temptations for the rest of the world. Make no, make no mistake, we hear about the fall. We always hear about the fall of temptation. We don't really hear the stories of those who resist temptation, do we? Those are our heroes. The people who stand up in the battle and they defend their walk with Christ and they honor the Lord in what they do. We don't hear a lot of those stories. But man, every time there's a story like this, we hear about it. Whether or not it's in my profession, we just came out of the Olympics, you probably heard stories of athletes who were cheating. You had nations who were banned because of their temptation to cheat. And all of that brings us into this passage. And we're going to address it today. So I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've not already turned there, we reach a young David, 49 years old. At one point, that didn't seem so young, did it? As we age, it seems a little bit younger. But we pick up our story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, when we have read this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now stop a second. It always kind of makes me smile when I hear, it was springtime of the year, that's when we go to battle. It's like spring, let's go to war, right? Now, there were some reasons. You've come out of the rainy season, and so all of a sudden in that world, when the rains dry, now you all of a sudden the roads become passable. There's fodder for your animals, your war horses, your pack animals can get in and out. You've got fields full of food so you can feed your army. There are a lot of things going on. And the Ammonites were always a thorn in their flesh. There was consistent hostility they had towards God's people. And so all of a sudden, David says, Joab, it's time to go, go deal with the Ammonites again. And so all of a sudden, we're told that he goes out. He sends Joab, and he sends his armies out. But we get this little phrase right there at the end of verse 1. But David remained at Jerusalem. What we see is this one who was our shepherd king, the one who was given to shepherd the people. David, you were prepared in the fields of pasture to shepherding sheep. I've prepared you to shepherd people. And now all of a sudden, David isn't shepherding people. He's become a palace king, not a shepherd king. And he's there at home. In the season when kings go out to lead their people, David says, I think I'm going I'm to sit this one out. 
I'm going to let you go, Joab. You go, and you go fight that battle. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in a position where he's alone. He's by himself. And what we know is this. When we read in 1 John about live your life in the light, that we would live our lives out in front of people because what we as humans have is this terrible dependency, excuse me, this terrible uh, problem with when we find ourselves isolated, we make bad decisions. Is when the darkness prevails, we will make bad decisions. Nobody else is going to see, nobody else is going to know our character gets revealed in those moments. We've talked about HALT, that acronym for when temptation will take over. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And David's lonely. All the men are gone. He's by himself. There's no accountability for him. He's alone. He's back at his palace. All the men are out. Look with me, if you would, at verse 2. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from the couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. There's our story. At what point does something become a sin? Well, recognize this. David is home. He's not supposed to be home. And people always want to treat Bathsheba like she is this temptress, this alluring temptress. And I think we make her the scapegoat. I think she's a victim in this situation. Why? Well, she's bathing on the roof. Well, you got to understand, in a culture of that day, when you had all single-story homes, bathing on the roof was the most privacy you were going to get. Unless you live in a palace. And the king has a higher elevated view. And we're told later on that she's going through this purifying ritual. She's actually doing what the Scriptures had told her to do. She's honoring the Lord in what she's doing. But let's get back to David. Because in this passage, we're not even hinting. Scripture doesn't give us any hint that Bathsheba does anything wrong. That's our culture that has gone and looked at Bathsheba and said, you're doing something wrong. And I think when we get into this, we're going to see a few things here. One is, recognize this, David's men are off at war. David's lounging on the sofa. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. It's late in the afternoon. He gets up off his bed and he goes for a stroll. Maybe to get a breeze, to look around. Well, if you look at it, it tells us he was walking on the roof. And we can say, well, he's just going for a walk. Well, scholars tell us what this means. When it says in other occurrences of where this Hebrew word walking around occur, it occurs in the context of negative, a negative flavor. And we're therefore probably justified in assuming that here as well, that there was some questionable conduct about to occur. You and I would use the phrase this way. He's out looking for trouble. All the men are gone. Whatever is going on, he gets up and he just goes and walks out of the roof and he's looking around and he's looking for trouble. And guess what? He finds it. He finds it. Not because she did anything wrong. It's interesting. Scripture tells us that she's beautiful. But he's out looking for trouble. And he finds it. And he finds it in the person of Bathsheba. And recognize that he says she's this beautiful woman. And the first thing he does is like, now who is she? 
Now recognize this, there's nothing wrong with observing. When does something become lust? When does it become sinful? It's not in the observation. It wasn't that he saw her. That wasn't sin. It was what happened next when all of a sudden you see his mind start rolling because now he's beginning to obsess about her. When all of a sudden he looks up and he says, now, now tell me about her. Now who is she? And you can almost hear the people like, don't do this, David. Don't do this. She is real. She's a person. She has a story. How, does they, how do they communicate it? Well, they'll come and say, now wait a minute. She's a daughter of somebody. She matters. Somebody's invested their life to care for her, to, to nurture her, and to build her up. She's the wife of Uriah. She's a daughter. She's a wife. David, don't do this. I think they already see what's coming. They already see that David's mind is turning. He's the king. Because the moment he sends for her is the moment that she has to come. She's got no power in this situation. I think she's oblivious to him. Why would she know that David's in the palace? It's spring. It's when the kings go to war. Her husband's at war. David is his commander. And he's home. I don't think she would have known he was home. I think she's doing what Scripture's told her to do, and I think she's quite oblivious. But what we have is somebody who's not where they're supposed to be, not fulfilling their responsibilities, goes for a walk, looking for trouble, and all of a sudden finds what he's looking for. And he summons Bathsheba up, and all of a sudden she's got to come to him. And when he was finished with her, did you catch that verse? Then, he, then she returned to the house. Because for David, she wasn't a real person. She's just a body. A beautiful body. That's all she was. I see her. I want her. Bring her to me. I'm done with her. Send her back. And she goes back. After all, she's powerless. What else could she do? The king sent her away. And then we get this note. And we don't know why this is. We don't have really a hint. And the woman conceived. We don't even have her name there because David wasn't treating her like a woman. He wasn't treating her like somebody that had any value whatsoever or worth. He's not treating her like an image bearer. He treated her like a body. And all of a sudden we got, well, the body conceived and sent word and said, David, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Now, do we know that it's David? It has to be David's. She went through a purification. There's no other way. It's only David's. Is it to say, David, now I'm yours. David, we're in trouble. David, you're going to have to come up with an excuse. How are you going to communicate this to my husband Uriah when he comes home from war? David, own this. Feel the guilt of this. We're not really told why. We're not told the heart of what's going on there. Just that all of a sudden, this happened. You see, the observation wasn't the sin. But when he, when he observed... And then he watched. And when he watched, he became obsessed. And when he obsessed, he sent for her. And then he took her. And then he used her. And then he dismissed her. See, it's a horrible story. It's a horrible story. And yet all of us can imagine what this story is going to be like. I said, we don't have many stories where we celebrate people who resist temptation. I think C.S. Lewis captures the heart here really well when he says it's a silly idea that, that uh, is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is obviously a lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
If we were a church that did a lot of amen, you'd probably say amen right now, right? Only those who try to resist it know how strong it gets. Because a man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later, right? And I think as we sit here, it's easy for us to say, well, I've never been in David's position. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. And yet, all of a sudden, when we come to this, we see the truthfulness of James because it happened It happened to David that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. See, I don't think that this was a story about Sheba. She was caught up in David and what's going on for him. It was his own desire that created this because the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And all of a sudden, we look up and we say, all right, so what's going on here? Well, I, I, I may have been in this situation. I may have fallen before. I may not have fallen. I may have stood strong. So I don't even know what this has to do with me. Well, I think you and I can say, well, let's take a real narrow understanding of what happened here. And I think Jesus says, let's be straight about this. Let's swing a bigger net at this. When he writes, when he says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And I'm sure that there's a self-righteous faction that says, well, that's not me. I've not done that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. See, when it was just adultery, literal adultery, we could say, well, maybe I haven't been there. I haven't done that. So what does this really speak to me? And Jesus says, well, let's swing a bigger net. Let's see if we don't capture everybody in this. Have you ever looked at somebody lustfully? Because if you have, even though you may not have physically committed adultery, you've committed adultery in your heart, and all of a sudden we find ourselves caught in this. And when we get caught in it, recognize what he says to do. He doesn't say, go condemn Bathsheba. He doesn't say, Bathsheba, take baths on another roof or inside your house. He doesn't come back and say any of those things. You catch those words? David, this is your problem. You deal with your problem, David. We're not going after Bathsheba. Don't send her an email. Don't go lecture her about what she needs to do differently. David, what I want you to do is I want you to take your right eye if it caused you to sin, and I want you to tear it out. We're not going to use scapegoats and victims in where our sin comes into play. We're going to own our own sin, David. And all of a sudden, we see ourselves caught in this way. So what's David going to do? The king, the man after God's own heart, has been caught up in this. And our story continues. He's betrayed a soldier. What will he do? Look with me, if you would, at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Now think with me for a minute. This is our chance. Oh man, David, you are in a mess. This is going to be tough. He's one of your soldiers. You've betrayed one of your own. And think about what it's going to be like, the morale of your army when it gets out, that while they're all fighting your home and you are engaging in inappropriate activities with the wives of your soldiers. David has this moment. She's pregnant. Let's bring him home. And you and I, if we don't know the story, we're thinking, oh, come on, David, you're going to have to own this. You're going to, you're going to confess, you're going to reconcile, and you're going to do what you can do to make it right. Joab, send me Uriah. 
Uriah comes home. Uriah walks into the room, and you can imagine how awkward this is going to be. David saying, well, kind of how are things going? How are things going on in the war? I mean, how's Uriah doing? Is he doing well? How's the war going? And there's still a chance that we're like, okay, okay, David's getting there. It's awkward. We get it. But come on, David. Let's see what happens here. And look at what happens. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go to the house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Oh, so David decided to go plan B. Plan A would have been to own it, to confess to seek reconciliation. He says, I think I'll do something else. Let me get Uriah home. Let me scheme and devise a plan to cover my tracks. Let me just create the environment where Uriah could go home, and then we could create plausible deniability, and we can get me off the hook. What he didn't account for is his integrity. I'm not going to do that. David, David stands in stark contrast. David's not even off at war. David's just laying on the sofa looking for trouble when this happens. He comes home. He's got a 24-hour pass, and all of a sudden he won't say, no way. Israel, my people, my commander, my fellow brothers in arms, they're not getting any of these comforts. I'm not doing that. I'm sure if you're David, you're like, oh, I didn't factor that in. Uriah's a man of strong character. He doesn't want to do that. And so all of a sudden, all right, there's blown opportunity one. Here's number two. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. Okay, I need another 24 hours. What's my plan now? So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to the house. Strike two. Maybe if I can get him drunk enough that he can forget his, uh, his inhibitions and his character, that he'll set that aside, and then I will be able to cover my tracks. And false. Number two, even though he'd had too much to drink, he finds himself that his integrity is so core to who he is that even having had too much to drink, he will not go home. Strike two. And because of that, we get strike three. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah has so much integrity. Uriah is carrying a note that ultimately uh, is going to lead to his death. Look at what he says. In the letter, David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah is carrying the note for his death. All of a sudden, David writes his, Uriah carried it. He doesn't look at it. He doesn't read it. He just goes and delivers it. And I'm sure that Joab looks at it and like, hmm. And here's the message. You want to know why we call it murder? 
Because David's instructions is, I want everybody to charge, and when they get to the front, everybody else stand back, but don't tell Uriah. And leave him there at the front, all by himself, exposed, so that he will be killed. That's the message. Look back with me at the story. And as Joab was besieging the city, verse 16, assigned to Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. We now have other people dying because sin always has collateral damage, doesn't it? And we might think, well, my sin's not going to affect anybody else. David's sin, now it's affected Bathsheba. It's affected everybody in the, in the guard in the palace. Now it's affected Uriah. There's other people who are dead as well. Then Joab sent and told David the news about the fighting. As instructed, and then instructed the messenger, hey, when you go tell David, this is what I want you to tell you. He's going to ask you some questions because what's going to happen is David's going to question my leadership abilities. And so I want you to have this conversation with him. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, if David gets mad that we lost people today, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died? You're so close to the wall, people are just dropping rocks on you, and you're losing our soldiers. Why did you go so near the wall? And if he wants to know any of those things, you say, your servant Uriah the Hittite's dead also. Just let him know that. You want to talk about something pretty fake. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Job had said for him to tell. The messenger then said to David, the men gained an advantage over us, came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city, overthrow it, and encourage him. Uriah is ticked. He lost Uriah. He lost some other valiant men. And he says, David, this is your fault. And if you question that, David, know that it's your fault. David hears the message. And he says, you know what? I need you to go back and encourage Joab. You know, one day this person falls, another day this person. It's just war, Joab. I mean, we're going to lose people. We know that. I want to send him home to cover my tracks. I'm going to get him drunk and send him home to cover my tracks. That didn't work. Let me send him out to battle and back away from him and have him killed. All of a sudden, what we see is this has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper because he wouldn't own his sin. And that which began as a temptation because he wasn't where he was supposed to be because he's in isolation, finds himself in this arena. See how this got happened? I'm going to say, Lance, but you know, I'm probably never going to be in the position to do this kind of thing. And I'd say, I know. I mean, I'm, we don't have any royalty in here. You don't have armies. But make no mistake, Jesus addressed this in Matthew 5 as well when he said, you've heard it said that those bold you shall not murder. Or whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. See, Jesus had a way of swinging a bigger net. You and I could say, well, I'm not guilty of this. And Jesus said, oh yeah, but what about this? 
And all of a sudden what we see is, oh my. An adultery and murder that David's guilty of, Jesus swings a bigger net and captures both of us in the same way in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Where did it begin? Not when we saw. It became a problem when we began to obsess. And then we couldn't let go of it. And now all of a sudden, look at all that's happened. Now, look down at the end of the story. And catch this. As I read verse 26, I want you to count the references to marriage. Because she's not just a body. She's a person. She's a daughter. She's a wife. She's a real person. She's made in the image of God. She matters. She has a story. David didn't didn't honor her in that way. But look at 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Make no mistake, Bathsheba matters. She's got a story. She's made in the image of God. Not that David paid any attention to any of that. And then we see how bad it gets here in verse 27. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. We say, well, way to step up, David. Way to step up. Doesn't communicate that. The literal phrase is, he sent and collected her to bring her into his service. I think he's still trying to hide his tracks. This isn't, oh, he's finally stepping up. No. I think he's trying to cover his tracks. Because he's already brought her into his service. He wasn't expecting all that happened. But now he just formalizes the arrangement and brings her into his service. See, that's why I think Bathsheba, when we treat her as this alluring temptress, I think we miss the story. Because the story isn't really about her. She is part of the carnage and the collateral damage that happens when somebody lets sin run rampant in their life and it goes unaddressed. And that's where she ends up. Now, all of a sudden, we get what seems to be the rest of the story. She did become his wife. She did bear him a son. But that thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, last week we were talking about he's the king. And all of a sudden, we went from he's the king to David, my servant, to him saying, I am your servant, because he had to get that reminder is that I'm the king, but there is a king of kings, and I'm not him. And the end of the story is, David, the king of kings, is mad at the king. You're supposed to shepherd my people, and you have not done that. So all of a sudden, as we begin moving through this, we see several things. I'd like to invite you to turn over to Psalms. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 51 first. We've already talked about Psalm 51 uh, earlier in this series and what it means. But I want to call attention to it because when you look at Psalm 51, that very first part, that's actually in Hebrew scriptures. So this, this isn't added from a commentator. We're told to the choir master, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So we know the context of this story. And it sounds really great. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. God, I have sinned and I want you to treat me in congruence with who you are, not what I have done. I'm falling at your feet and I'm claiming who I know you to be and asking you to respond to me that way. I'm asking you to blot out my transgressions, to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now you and I can read that and say, well, that sounds really good for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, I like all that he says there. But when you drop down to verse uh, 10, when we read this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I'm still like, yes, David, we need the Lord to do that. But that next verse, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, the New Testament believer doesn't ever have to pray that prayer. He can't take the Holy Spirit from you. The Holy Spirit was given as a down payment for your sin. Excuse me, for your salvation. So it's been given to you already. He can't take it away. This is a reference for him saying, please don't take my kingship. Please don't take my kingship. Let me recover from this sin. Now, why do I think that's significant? Because I think that maybe if you... Remember when you were a child, maybe if you've had a child, when you questioned if the child is upset that they got caught or if they're upset by the consequences or if they're upset because they disobeyed you. Because I read this and I feel like David is upset that he is facing consequences. But this psalm seems to have a, a sister psalm. If you go back to Psalm 32, we don't have the context recorded for us uh, is clearly here, but this seems to be what David, where he ended up after Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who, uh, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. He uses three different words to describe the sin. Because look what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer, Selah. That Selah, we're not quite sure what it means. It seems to be a musical term that means stop, pause, and reflect. Now, if you think about David's life where he kept silent about his sin, he ended up bringing Uriah home, bringing Uriah home for a second day, getting Uriah killed. They got other men killed in the process. When I kept silent, when I didn't own my sin, my bones were wasting away. My groaning was all day long. For day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dry. I had no vitality in my life. Now stop, pause, and reflect. Have you seen that in your life? When you try to cover your sin, when you try to cover your tracks, when you've not owned up to something? Because I think David said, I want you to reflect. That's what the impact is like. And then he picks up, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, Lord, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. I was going through this terrible time of keeping silent and its impact, but when I released that to you and confessed it and stepped up and owned it, oh my goodness, you forgave me. You forgave me. Say, La, have you been there? Stop, pause, and reflect. Have you been there? Because if you've been there, why would we stay in that first one where we have no spiritual vitality? Because what he teaches us is when I do that and offer it up, my vitality returns because the Lord redeems it. What a gift. And then having experienced that, look at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Based on what I just experienced, I want to tell all of you, hey, if you're hiding in your sin, let it go. Confess it and watch the Lord redeem it. 
Watch Him release you from the guilt and the shame of it because everyone who's godly may offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach Him because, Lord, You are a hiding place for me. For me. You preserve me from trouble and You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Stop, pause, and reflect. He had a chance, he didn't take it. Had a second chance, he didn't take it. Had a third chance, didn't take it. Ultimately, he took it. And wherever we are today, I don't know how many chances you've had to take it. I would tell you this, David's words to you is, stop letting the spiritual vitality uh, dissipate from you. Bring it to the Lord, confess it, watch him restore you. That's who he is and that's what he does. That's who he is. I think Chuck Swindoll captures this really well when he says this, our most difficult times are not when things are going hard. Hard times create dependent people. You don't get proud when you're dependent upon God. Survival keeps you humble. Remember when Saul's chasing him to kill him? He was very close to the Lord. Now all of a sudden, he's just in rest at the palace. And all that free time created a problem. Pride happens when everything is swinging in your direction, when you've just received that promotion. When you look back and you can see an almost spotless record in the last number of months or years when you're growing in prestige and fame is significant, that's the time to watch out, especially if you're unaccountable. Our greatest battles usually come when we're working, don't usually come when we're working hard, they come when we have some leisure. We've got some time on our hands when we're bored. It's what happened to David for where, where we find ourselves. As Bonhoeffer said, the problem isn't that he makes us hate God. It's the fact that he can just get us to forget God. Because in these moments, what David forgot is I'm a shepherd to the people. I'm not here to just ravage the women in the city. I'm a shepherd. And yet when he, for, when he went and confessed to the Lord, he saw this to be true. When God reveals himself in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sounds a lot like Psalm 32, doesn't it? Because when he finally went before the Lord, he experienced it. He found this to be true. This is how God revealed himself and David experienced it and you will experience it too. I think there's a question for us. How are we doing? And what we see is this. You've got at least three battlefields. You've got three battlefields that you and I are battling temptation on at all times. Here's the first one. It's your eyes. It's your eyes. What we see, that's where it began for David. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Uh, our eyes have a propensity to go look at things they shouldn't be looking at. It's not saying Bathsheba is worthless. No, that's why God's defending her. Those things that are not ours, that are worthless, that distract. Give me life in your ways, God. Teach me how to use my eyes for you. That's your first battlefield. The second one is your mind. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. We've got to reshift our minds. We've got to clean up our eyes. We've got a battlefield for our eyes. We've got a battlefield for our mind. And then ultimately, it's our heart, isn't it? Let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Three battlefields. Begins with our eyes, moves to our mind, and then takes root down in our heart. We've got to address those things. 
Lance, you have no idea. You don't know what I deal with. You don't know my background. You don't know what obsessions I've had, what addictions I've had. You're right, but I do know this. Your victory will always be found in our Savior. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. Only He can do that. With great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's where our victory is going to be found. So my question is, how are you doing? How are you doing? This isn't a time to be a hero. This is a time to be real. To own whatever is going on in your life. What's going on with your eyes? What's going on with your mind? What's going on with your heart? And let's deal with it. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.